Aloha and welcome back to the Sports Medicine Orthopod. We've been on a delay, a break for a few weeks, but here we are back again. We've got my good friends in the house. We've got Dr. Adam Schiff, Loyola Foot and Ankle Specialist. What's going on, Adam? Anthony, great. Thanks for being here. Uh, I'm glad you enjoyed your vacation. Some of us have been on the grind, working hard for the past three weeks, waiting for you to come back. Yeah, absolutely. I've been working hard uh, downing lava flows and snorkeling with turtles. It's been awesome. I was in Maui, everybody. Get off my back. I need a vacation every now and then. Uh, and also joining us from Mass General Spine Specialist, Harold Fogel. Harold, what's up? Hey, man. Great to see you guys. Welcome back. You got a little color on your face. You're looking good. Mahalo. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this is actually going to be the first of a two-segment show. Uh, I've got Dr. Amr Patel, a hand specialist here uh, towards the end of the show. He's going to come on to talk about Jalen Brown and Kelly Oubre Jr. You know, Adam, you and I have winged it through some hand and wrist stuff in the past, but now we're talking about scaphoid lunate interosseous ligament tears. Uh, there's only so much we can get by with our good looks on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the hand is the dumb foot, but uh, I don't think it's a bunion of the hand, so we, we need to turn it over to someone who knows just a touch more than we do. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to open it up with Chris Weidman, which at this point is kind of an old injury. It was the, the fight that I think is notorious now for this gruesome tibia injury he sustained. That's April 25th, you know, three, three weeks or, or so ago against Uriah Hall. You guys saw it, I'm sure. What, what were you thinking when you saw this injury? Man, it's just, uh, you know, every once in a while, it seems there's an athlete that has this gruesome injury that I, everyone, it's like the car accident. You don't want to watch, you don't want to watch. And you're like, all right, fine, I'm going to look at it. Remember there's that Louisville basketball player, you know, a couple Kevin years Ware. ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, you see some gruesome stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's even more incredible how we didn't even realize it right away. He had to wait until trying to put weight on the foot and uh, the leg gives out and he falls to the ground is when he realized it. Pretty incredible. Yeah, I think tibia fractures really have this sort of gruesome quality to them. It's such a subcutaneous bone. You know, it's, it's right there. You can see the shin. And so you, know, you can see a lot of bones break in the body, but very few have that sort of impact to the general public, like a tibia fracture. And uh, when you're paying a lot of money to watch a fight, you hate to see the leg go the wrong way. Yeah, and a lot's been made, obviously, of the irony of the situation. This He was on the receiving end of a kick that Anderson Silva delivered and ended up breaking his tibia. And you know, the coincidence of it all and how and why did this happen that kind of crossed my mind was you guys ever play that game pencils when you were a kid? Uh, if, for the audience who doesn't know that game, it's I have a number two pencil and you have a number two pencil and we whack them against each other and eventually one of them breaks. And, I, you know, part of the reason why I thought about that is I'm on this trip to Hawaii and my kid's got an iPad and literally like any Disney production or movie that she wants to watch is there to touch of a finger. It's like, what did I do when I was growing up? I, you know, I had a number two pencil, you had a number two pencil, we whack them together until one of them breaks. But it's like, kind, kind, you know, people are like searching for answers. How could this happen? Why did this happen? Did you have previous micro fractures or whatnot? But, you know, they, these are two strong objects. You bang them together enough and, and sometimes something's got to give. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, there's no difference between this and uh, falling off your bike and, and running into a pole or something like that. He, He's swinging his leg with incredible speed, velocity, force, and he's going against another still object, another tibia. And 
it's going to hurt somebody and one of them is probably going to break eventually. And we've seen this twice now in, in this type of fighting arena where a leg breaks and this won't be the only time this happens. Uh, legs are going to break when they're hit with that much force. Yeah. And so, you know, I debated whether we should talk about this, but then I heard this interview he gave with Ariel Hawani a few days after the injury, after he'd had surgery and been discharged home. And he was super candid and very in-depth with the description of the entire process, his thought process when he delivered the kick, to stepping back and seeing his leg deformed, to being on the mat as the medical personnel came to his, uh, to his side uh, emergently, listening to them talk about, can you feel a pulse being you know, shipped to the hospital, looking for his wife. And you know, it's, it's a lot of what we do and take for granted on a daily basis, but to hear somebody on the patient side actually kind of go through all those details uh, was, was pretty fascinating. I thought, and you know, kudos to him for being so open about it. Um, you know, he, he ended up posting his x-rays, which uh, I, I think you guys have seen. And so, you know, the, the pattern of fracture is what we call transverse. And that's what we'd expect, right, for this type of mechanism of injury. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, a transverse, you know, basically means a straight sideways um, a fracture. The bone breaks kind of cleanly in two pieces. That's exactly what you expect. You know, not every tibia looks like this. Most tibia fractures actually don't break in this way. And the reason is usually when tibia is breaking, there's a lot of rotation to it, right? It involves the foot turning or twisting, involves other objects that are moving. And so that, that tends to cause the rotation this leg hits directly on uh, bone breaks more sideways, more of a transverse fracture. Yeah. And it looked and the x-rays matched up to it, that it, it was sort of towards the lower end of the shaft. We kind of break up the tibia shaft into thirds. And this looked like it was in what we call the distal or lower third. And to your point, a lot of these tibia fractures with that kind of spiral rotational component, when they're located in that area, that fracture may actually propagate down to the ankle joint. And so, many times, especially it's kind of ER management for a distal third tibia fracture 101, you get a CAT scan to make sure that that fracture line is not going down to the ankle joint. But with this transverse pattern, this mechanism, the, the risk of that is is not really there. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right, Anthony. You know, when the ankle joint is involved, it's a very different injury for, for several reasons. Uh, number one, uh, longer term risk in the future for arthritis or right? the cartilage is damaged. Uh, potentially you're increasing that risk in the future. It's a longer recovery trying to protect that cartilage. Uh, but not knowing there's a cartilage injury, when you go to fix it at the time of surgery, you certainly could make that injury worse, right? If you, we, we typically fix these with rods down the middle of the bone in, in adults, and you put a rod down that bone, you're hammering the rod down, you can make that fracture get worse. And so you have to know it's there and, and treat that sort of ahead of time. And so it's really important to know it's there Usually we do that with a CT scan, looking at his x-rays that he was kind enough to post for us in our conversation. Uh, it doesn't look like the type that's there, but boy, you're, you're going to double check and triple check that in a professional athlete or a regular lay person like us, that that's an injury we don't want to miss. And so we're going to pay close attention to make sure he does not have that type of injury. And so you mentioned intramedullary rod. That is how this was fixed. He talks about how it was done. They basically placed this rod through his knee to fix the tibia. Explain that. What is an intramedullary nail or rod? 
why, why do we do it this way? What's the benefit? Yeah. So, uh, intermediary fixation, we call it, you know, nails, we nail these tibias is a, a common way to fix, we call long bone fractures, um, femur and tibia. So thigh bone and shin bone. And then sometimes even in the humerus, we can do them this way, but basically it's a rod that goes down the center of the bone to hold the bone together, to let it heal. There's lots of good reasons to do it biomechanically. It's a really strong way to fix it. Uh, it helps you line it up, but in the tibia in particular, it's right underneath the skin, what we call subcutaneous. And it can be exposed to the outside environment a lot, open fractures, which is what this was also. Um, but the muscle around the bone is what lets it heal and where a lot of the blood supply comes from. And so if you make big incisions and put plates and screws on, you take away a lot of that blood supply. It can really slow the healing down. And so we put rods down the inside of bones. It really protects the blood supply, helps it heal faster. And actually the process of running a rod up and down uh, the leg, we call it reaming, but to prepare for the rod to go down, that promotes healing and generates a healing response as well. So it's a, it's a really good way. Uh, you stay away from the fracture. You don't disrupt the fracture's blood supply and you promote healing at the same time. It, it's also something that will stay in probably forever. Unless there's a reason to remove it, it will stay in. And there's very low risk of hardware irritation over that fracture site. So a guy like this who wants to get back to, you know, elite athletics and fighting, uh, if he has a plate right over that area, it's probably going to irritate him every time he kicks. It's going to be a weak spot for him. Uh, having it in the middle of the bone uh, protects him from a lot of other injuries in the future. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of things I want to touch on there. So one is going through the knee. So one of the things he said in this interview was his knee was killing them. That's to be expected with this particular approach for this particular surgery, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in order to get to the top of the tibia, you have to go through or near the knee joint. And there's some advantages of going around the knee, advantages of going through the knee. Um, but certainly there's a high instance of knee pain when you're operating around the knee for a tibia fracture. Uh, about 50% of people who have a tibial nail placed have knee pain. Most of it goes away over time. Uh, it kind of depends on other things. You know, people can have injuries to their knee at the same time, which maybe increase that risk Like car accidents. For instance, they can have contusions around their knee that can increase your risk of knee pain. But, um, certainly manipulating inside the knee joint for this surgery is going to cause some knee pain afterwards. And for those first six weeks, two months after surgery, it's all about getting knee motion, getting the swelling and effusions out of the knee to try to promote some of that. So his interview was pretty quick after surgery, you know, two, three weeks after surgery, knee pain is what's really common at this time. Most of the time the fracture is feeling much better. Fracture is lined up. It's got metal holding it together doesn't typically cause as much pain, but the knee pain, it seems to be the predominant complaint that should go away with time. I mean, there's a high incidence of people who have knee pain after the surgery, but virtually everyone has it right away. And so I, I think over time you'll find that he gets back and he should get good knee range of motion. He, he's posting pictures on his, you know, Twitter, Instagram already of him working on knee motion. You don't, you don't expect this to keep him down in the long run. Yeah, and as you mentioned, you can kind of go in or around the knee. Specifically, what we're talking about is the relationship to the kneecap. So you can go in front of the kneecap or under it. Uh, the under approach, we call that super patellar. That's what, based on his surgical scars, which he was kind enough to share also with um, Ariel Holwani, it looks like he had the super patellar approach. The risk for knee pain seems to be a little bit less, but it's still there. 
uh, with, with this approach. And, and just like you said, you got to violate the knee joint to, to get that nail in and um, uh, sh should improve with time. The other thing you mentioned that I want to get back to is that this was an open fracture, uh, which I, when I first saw the injury, I couldn't tell at first, but it makes total sense. You could see how deformed the leg was. It doesn't take much imagination to imagine that some of those tibial shards are going to be poking through the skin. We've talked about open fractures before here, Adam. Uh, we don't need to beat a dead horse, but he was very clear that, you know, that instantly raises alarm bells. Uh, he talks about being rushed to the hospital and begging the medical staff, just take me to the OR, put, sedate me, get, you know, put me under as soon as I can, but probably because of lack of availability of an OR, you know, like operating rooms aren't just standing open waiting to fix professional athletes who have catastrophic injury at, at the drop of a hat. Uh, they had to do some ER management where they began to clean that fracture out at, at the bedside in the emergency room, which he just said was it, just terribly, terribly painful. Um, but but it's an important step, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there, you know, it, the video on his fracture is very interesting. You know, it looks like it breaks and it looks like it probably opens when he actually steps back. Mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the, the leg foot goes one way, uh, then he steps back and foot goes the other way. And that's when it looks like his tibia pokes out of his skin. Um, once that environment is broken, the outside world and the inside world start to sort of communicate, your risk of infection is a lot higher. And there's things you got to do to try to decrease that risk. One is to wash it out and get it cleaned. Um, you know, you can imagine what a UFC ring is like, right? There's sweat, there's blood, there's bacteria. I mean, it's not a clean environment. And so you want to kind of clean, clean that, clean the surrounding skin and make it as healthy as possible. And obviously starting antibiotics, right? Those antibiotics should be started really quickly. That's probably the thing that leads to, you know, decreased infection more than anything. And then, you know, you want to get it stable, splint it, make it lined up. That usually takes away a lot of the pain. Um, you know, major injuries need to go to the operating room emergently. And if he didn't have a pulse or if he, you know, had what we would call a compartment syndrome that we've talked about before, those are potentially limb and life-threatening injuries. Though Those need to be done emergently. Uh, but a, just an open tibia fracture does not need to be done emergently. It should be done urgently. And this happens in the middle of the night. Um, you know, when you take someone to surgery emergently, you, there's things you violate, right? We don't care if a patient has been eating or drinking because it's life or limb threatening. Uh, in a, an ideal situation, we don't want someone to have eaten or drinking right away. You want it out of their stomach. It decreases some of their risks associated with anesthesia. And so this guy's getting ready for fighting. He's clearly been drinking, you know, and hydrating that day. He's been eating. He's prepared to fight to take him on a full stomach. There's some risk to that. So, you know, waiting is probably a good idea uh, unless it can't wait. The other thing is this is becoming the middle of the night. You know, it's a nighttime fight, goes to the hospital. By the time all of this has worked out, it's the middle of the night. And, you know, as surgeons, we know, we probably don't do our best work in the middle of the night. I mean, I think we're capable and we do a good job, but it's always better to be well rested if we can. And so if you're operating on an elite athlete and you can do it first thing in the morning with your A team, right? Nurses who you typically work with, who are familiar with this type of surgery, anesthesia, who is on the top of their game, as opposed to middle night, everybody's a little bit tired. It's a better, healthier environment. So there's advantages to waiting. Obviously, if you can't and it's emergent, that's what we're prepared to do. And that's what the, the emergent team is there for. But if they can wait, it's certainly more ideal to wait uh, for a lot of reasons. 
Yeah, and the stakes are extremely high in this situation, particularly with doing a good job with the surgery. And we'll talk about why in a second. You know, we as surgeons, we always want to bring our A game. We always want to do our best with every surgery for every patient, regardless if they are a UFC star or whatnot. But there are definitely some surgeries with more room for error. Now, Harold doesn't do any of those types of surgeries. He's a spine surgeon. Every one of his surgeries is high risk with, you know, uh, he's got to be sharp and on his A game at all, at all times. Um, you know, there isn't the risk of a tibia of spinal cord injury or paralysis. But, but in this case, one of the things that uh, Chris Weidman was talking about was a concern that the tibia doesn't heal. And the reason why he's concerned about this is he's had like 70 injuries and 53 surgeries. He's been around the block when it comes to surgeries. And this is the most serious one, but he has had some complications in particular for one in his wrist. I think he ended up having some sort of ligament surgery around his thumb. Two months later, it was discovered that one of the bones in his wrist was dying. Now, this sounds a lot to us like the scaphoid, a bone with a very poor vascular supply. And if there was an injury missed to that bone, a subtle fracture or something, that could lead the scaphoid to die uh, because of this poor blood supply. It doesn't have a great ability to heal itself. And he had to go back to surgery um, to basically get that taken care of. We're speculating here again. We're not good risk guys, but there are certain times where you may have to excise the scaphoid, fuse other bones together, uh, joints in the wrist to stabilize uh, the wrist with the absence of the scaphoid. It kind of sounds like that's maybe what happened. So he asked his surgeon straight up, hey, is there a chance this tibia might not heal? To which his surgeon said, honestly, yeah, actually there is. And he put it at about 5%. Um, you know, the kind of numbers I've been looking at are maybe like 2 to 10%. So it's definitely 5% in there. And one of those risk factors is if you don't line up the bone uh, pretty damn perfectly. And his x-rays look money, right? They look like it is lined up what we call anatomically, which is about as good as God can make it. But, but that's one of those things um, that you as the surgeon, you have to get right when, when you're doing the surgery. There, there isn't much room for error. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, there's a lot of fa risk factors for non-union, particularly for tibias. Um, and these come in all different shapes and sizes, right? We have people who break their tibias fighting. We have people who break their tibias slipping on a sidewalk or going down a stair. We have people who break tibias in high-speed car and motorcycle accidents. So, you know, they, they all, they don't, not that every injury is the same, but certainly a component to how well it's done affects the healing, right? If it's done well and the bone's lined up nicely it, and it's in its normal native environment, it's going to want to heal better if the bones are touching or they're nowhere near each other, probably not going to heal as well. So your job as a surgeon has a lot to do with it. Um, it being open certainly increases that risk factor of a non-union. Uh, again, at higher risk for infection. When it opens, some of that blood supply around the bone gets disrupted. So that's, that's certainly another risk factor as well. The pattern of the fracture, the way that bone breaks is a risk factor also breaking completely horizontally or transversely is a higher risk than if it breaks at an angle. Uh, and, and for a couple of reasons, one is um, the angled ones are typically are a little less high energy, right? It's more of a rotation, someone tripping and falling. The transverse ones are usually higher energy, whether it's a high impact fighting or a, a motor vehicle collision. Um, it's also bone surface area for healing, right? It, uh, well, the ones that are oblique or spiral 
there's more surface area that's broken to heal when it's totally sideways and transverse, maybe not quite as much surface area. So those are all risk factors for uh, non-union. The most important ones though are, are things we can't influence uh, and that's who breaks their leg, right? Um, people who smoke and are diabetic and are unhealthy and overweight obviously have a lot higher risk factor for the tibia not healing than people who are elite athletes or fit or things like that. So, you know, in any of these, there's a risk factor and, um, you know, it's, it's always that Murphy's law, but if there's someone who's going to break their leg and not heal, it's going to be the high profile elite athlete, but <laughs> you'd have to expect that, uh, Chris Wyman's got a pretty good chance of healing this, uh, particularly the way it was done. You know, his surgeon did a great job. Um, and he's a, you know, young, healthy, active guy. This is not the scaphoid. It doesn't carry that risk of avascular necrosis like the scaphoid does, but you know, you, you better bet these guys are being watched very closely to make sure they heal and doing everything they can to, to heal. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, to echo your point, the, the one factor risk factor there that we can control in the operating room as a surgeon is getting that thing reduced as best we can, as anatomically as possible, particularly in this case, because it does matter for that chance of healing. So uh, the x-rays look great, um, very high chances this heals, but you know, you, you gotta watch it to ensure that that, that occurs. Yeah, you know, I think his interview was, was just so fascinating, uh, hearing the patient's perspective. And I think every patient experiences something different, but you know, no one plans on a trauma. No one plans to break a bone on a day. These aren't elective surgeries. This isn't, uh, I'm going to have surgery this time and I know what to expect. And uh, everyone's story is different, but the, the, the sort of fear and panic and anxiety you can hear in his voice telling the story is something that I think we've seen in all of our patients who have these unplanned injuries. And uh, no one plans, these are some of the scariest days in anyone's lives and, and our significant others and our families and friends' lives when they don't know what's happening to you as a patient. Um, but, you know, it's uh, hearing his anxiety about it, it it's, it's, it's very comforting in a way to know that no matter who you are, the motorcycle rider, the homeless person who has an injury to a professional elite athlete, everyone goes through the same thing those days and everyone's concerned and everyone's got this fear of what's happening to me, what's going to happen next. And uh, it, it's just, it's fascinating to hear the patient's perspective, uh, especially in an event like this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the toughest humans in the world and he was getting emotional talking about it. Uh, let's just finish up and then we're going to bring Harold in here to talk about some exciting back pain. Speaking that of non-tough is... people, we'll bring yes. Harold. <laughs> <back>. <laughs> yeah, the, um, he, he had mentioned, he had mentioned not fixing the fibula. So the fibula was broken as well. Um, he seemed to have a pretty uh, good understanding as to why, but uh, as our foot and ankle guru, why, why don't you need to fix the fibula? Yeah, it's uh, a great question. I mean, some of these, the fibula needs to be fixed probably, and some of them don't. You know, when the tibia and fibula act as a unit and they move together and, and you restore the alignment of the tibia and the fibula lines up really nicely, it, it's got a good rate of healing and there's not much reason to fix it. Uh, ones that are really deformed or angulated in certain directions, sometimes you want to add some stability and make the, the, the method you fix it stronger by fixing the fibula. Um, when, when the fibula is lower and involves the ankle joint or what we call the syndesmosis, dot, where the ligaments of the, the high ankle ligaments are, um, those become a little bit of a different story. Those you want to fix to restore the stability. Uh, here, the ankle is stable. 
and, and his ankle is fine. His knee is stable and his knee is fine. It's the area in between that's the problem. And if you get that fixed nicely, that should heal really nicely. There are downsides to fixing the fibula, particularly the level that he broke. The fibula is surrounded by a lot of muscle and some big nerves. And to make an incision over that area, to move everything out of the way to try to fix it, you're putting that nerve at risk. You're putting some of that muscle at risk. Um, and you might not actually line it up perfectly, right? I mean, if you look at his x-rays, his tibia fracture is pretty straightforward. It's nice, simple, transverse. His fibula is broken into a few more little pieces in that. And so you might not actually line up perfectly. It might actually hurt your tibia by trying to fix your fibula. So lots of reasons not to. Uh, certainly we fix the tibia or the easy one first, fix the tibia in this case, then evaluate the fibula. The fibula is lined up pretty well. can certainly be treated non-operatively. And when you're following this by x-ray and following healing, you'll see healing of that fibula pretty darn quickly since you didn't manipulate it at all. I imagine by him six weeks, you'll see some pretty good healthy bone called callus, you know, around his fibula that thinks she healed very nicely. Yeah. He was saying that as he was walking around, he knows mentally the fibula didn't need to be fixed, but he could feel the, uh, kind of broken shards, the comminution, as we call it, kind of moving around, which, you know, we've all fixed a bunch of tibias and we probably never thought about that, you know, fix tibias, leave the fibulas alone. Hey, I wonder if these people can actually feel <laughs> the, the unfixed parts of the fibula moving around. He said, he said he actually could, which is kind of funny. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, historically people who break their tibias and they're fixed this way, they don't walk on it, right? You, you make them non-weight bearing for six weeks and mm -hmm. give everything a chance. So by the time they start walking, their fibula is probably healed. They've never experienced that. Mm -hmm. Getting them to walk on it's a, a pretty newer thing. I mean, it's, just been studied. Um, I think for, for the simple, straightforward tibias, we, we let them walk on it right away. The, the really complex ones are if the ankle joints affected, we certainly don't, but uh, I, I don't think most people are walking on it enough that we hear that story very often, but, it, yeah. but it's a very interesting point he describes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, real quick, if you don't mind, like, uh, the spine guy over here is going to chime in about a lower extremity injury, but <laughs> not, not, out of all seriousness, you know, it's kind of crazy, you know, we watch something like this and you see just this grossly horrific injury, right? And to us, to the lay person, I mean, it's very obvious. This is like one of the worst injuries that, you know, you'll see an athlete sustain. And, you know, immediately you come to mind, like, is, is this leg even going to survive? Or is he going to like lose his leg? Is he even going to be able to walk again? You know, unfortunately, you know, he's had successful surgery and, and, you know, frankly, for an athlete to come back from just a, a, a sole, like, bone injury, right, is, he has a pretty good chance to return to sport. Uh, and granted, you know, he's a, a fighter, UFC fighter. He's not a basketball player where he needs to have a ton of agility and pivot and whatnot. But then you, like, contrast that to someone who has maybe, like, kind of like a, a more benign-looking injury to an ankle joint where ligaments are injured. And, you know, Adam, I don't know if you want to talk about that, like how that's like so much harder uh, to, re you know, return to sport from compared to something with, quote unquote, just a bone break. Yeah, I mean, Harold, it's a great point. I think, um, you know, bones heal really nicely and they uh, once they heal, as long as they heal in the right position, uh, they, they seem to do very well. And once Chris Weidman heals, assuming he heals the way we expect him to. Uh, it probably won't be an injury that lingers throughout his career. You know, yes, we hear all the terrible stories, the Alex Smith stories who, you know, get infected and need all these multiple surgeries, but most broken bones heal nicely and they're able to return to sport pretty darn well. 
those ligament and tendon injuries just don't ever heal the same. You know, it's, it's scar tissue. Um, you can't regenerate that tissue quite the same, especially when the joint and the cartilage is affected. Um, tendon injuries, we think of Achilles, you know, they, they, people lose strength and they lose the ability to push off. And for an elite athlete, those little bits of differences make a huge difference in the long run. And uh, certainly a tendon ligament injury is probably harder to come back from or harder to sustain at high level in the long run. Bone heals nicely and uh, bone injuries heal nicely. So it's, it's certainly, you know, a simple injury like this, while it looks gruesome, because the bone's so strong and it's so hard to sustain an injury like that. And when you see it break, it's so obvious to everybody. I'm sure people in the stadium can hear the bone break. Uh, they, they heal so well. So, I, you know, it's, it's sort of the contrast to your world, these spine injuries where they, you know, look like relatively small collisions or look like nothing. And then the athletes on the field and they can't move their arms and legs. And you wonder what happened sometimes the most you know, smallest traumatic or most benign injuries cause the worst injuries that's to nerves. So, you know, certainly bone injuries do a lot better than nerve injuries do. Right. And, you know, it's such a horrible thing to see an athlete with a spinal cord injury. Uh, fortunately, we don't have to talk about that today. Hopefully never will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I don't know why I'm laughing at that. Uh, Harold, you know, just as sort of a personal question, do do you think about that, the stakes of your surgery, like when you're in a case or just, you know, when you're having food for thought, thinking about life, do, do, do you think about how great the stakes are when you're operating on somebody's spine? Yeah, I, I think you have to, and it's impossible not to. Um, you know, it's not that it's like on the, the forefront of your, your mind, like with every thing you do in the surgery, right? You're focused on the thing that you're doing, but it's always in the back of your mind that, you know, th there's, yeah, a lot at stake here. And, you know, just so in, in any surgery that any surgeon will do, there's risk uh, in every part of the surgery. But yeah, you know, a, a risk to a spine surgery is unique in that it can have catastrophic uh, effects on a person if there was ever an injury to the spinal cord or even just a single nerve root. So, that's a, a, a risk to a surgery that, yeah, you should always pay attention to and you know, hopefully will forever avoid in surgery and never have to realize that complication. Anthony, you're going to make him take up smoking when you keep pounding <laughs> these high stress moments at him. Yeah, start putting some Nicorette's in my <laughs> Well, um, lo lower stress quote unquote spine topics today. Is, I don't know, Harold, you can kind of tell us if, Back pain is really spine related. Um, we've got two injuries. So one, Christian Yelich, a baseball player who's had low back pain, stiffness, what have you, for a long time. He's, he's missed a lot of time. He attempted to come back to play on May 3rd. Uh, didn't go well. He went back on the 10-day injured list. Uh, he just started a rehab assignment in AAA level uh, yesterday, I think. So he, he's on his way back, but it's been a long road. And then Serge Ibaka just returned to the Clippers after missing two full months of the NBA season for basically the same thing. I'm not sure if Ibaka had an MRI, but Christian Yelich did, and the reports are that there was no structural damage. Anybody who follows sports sees these guys with back strains, particularly in baseball, it seems. Um, back sprains, spasms, what have you, like what gives? 
Yeah. You know, I'm sure a lot of the fans at home are empathizing with these athletes, right? You know, a lot of people are having back pain throughout their lives. I mean, back pain is actually statistically the number one cause in work-related disability in days missed from work. Uh, so, you know, these professional athletes are no different than a lot of, you know, people at home going to work wherever, you know, doing whatever they do. You know, the most likely explanation here is a muscle strain, right? That's the most common cause of back pain in all comers. And it seems that's likely what happened, you know, whether it was swinging a bat or, you know, maybe even doing something, you know, rather benign, you know, he didn't even realize it at the time that he strained a muscle. Uh, that's the most likely scenario for, for both of them. You know, as you said, you always had an MRI and there was quote unquote, no structural damage. You know, that's just like a very vague, generic way of describing that it was like a normal looking MRI. You know, when you, when you get an MRI, you're looking at the nerves specifically, you're looking to see if, the, if there's a disc bulge or disc herniation, putting pressure on the nerve. And if that was the case, typically there's pain or numbness that shoots down the leg or in the neck shoots, uh, shoots down the arm. But, you know, having isolated back pain in a professional athlete, you know, it's almost always going to be a muscle strain. And, you know, fortunately for both these guys, those are injuries that are treated without surgery. Uh, but like most of the injuries that has been discussed on, on this podcast, sports injuries can be very, very frustrating. They can last and linger for a really, really long time. And even when you think you're past it, uh, a day or two or even a couple weeks later will reemerge and put you back on the DL. Yeah, I'm going back to my days in spine clinic. And I think one of the misconceptions in the public is that, you know, back pain should be solved with back surgery, right? Like my back hurts. I need spine surgery to fix that. But, but that's actually really not the case, right? No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, doing back surgery on back pain is just almost always a recipe for more problems. And, you know, you should, it's just like my, my uh, public service announcement to the listeners out there. If you're having back pain, avoid back surgery. You shouldn't be having it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, especially in these young, young people, young guys, young professional athletes, having a back surgery will put them out for a long time and could potentially change their careers forever. And most importantly, actually, maybe not even help their problems. So, yeah, a muscle strain, that's not a surgical issue. It's, rest, rehab, strengthening, strengthening your core abdominal muscles, your back extensor muscles, getting your, your whole body back into shape. So, uh, you know, that's what those guys are, are going through now and slowly uh, returning back to form, hopefully. Yeah, and the types of things you really can help people with are nerve-related injuries that are related to spine pathology, whether that's arthritis or bulging discs or malalignment, things of that sort. But those cause issues outside of back pain, right? Like you mentioned, leg pain, numbness, tingling, nerve deficits, arm pain, shoot, shooting from the neck down to the fingers, that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, exactly right. You know, it's, you know, when a patient comes in, they complain of symptoms going down one of their arms into a fingertip or down their leg into the side of their, their foot. I mean, even without looking at the MRI, you know, you can basically pick up or predict where that, uh, where the problem is, you know, which nerve root is affected. And, you know, if they go through the whole non-operative protocol and they're still having problems, 
then yeah, there's a surgery that can fix that and reliably fix that. Uh, and, and patients do very well with that. Uh, so, you know, if that was the case, like you look at someone like Peyton Manning, you know, he was having an issue in his neck where the nerves were being affected by uh, something, putting pressure on those nerves. And so he ultimately had surgery in order to decompress the nerve and uh, to take away his arm pain and restore that arm function. So, you know, that's very different than uh, what these two guys are, are going through right now. Yeah, so we'd expect full recovery. I mean, Ibaka's back. No surprise. A few days before the playoffs begin. Baseball season's very long, so we expect Yelich has plenty of time to get back, and they'll take their time with him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for Yelich especially, you know, you saw he came, as you mentioned, he came back for one day, re-aggravated it, and then was back on the DL. So, you know, they're going to take it very slowly. Um, you know, he's in, I think, down in Nashville right now doing some rehab assignments. Uh, and, you know, hopefully we'll do well and slowly work his way back up uh, to the Brewers and uh, hopefully not have to deal with this again. And same thing with, with the, as you, as you said, with the Baca, you know, it took a while for him to come back, but they were in no rush for him to come back with the end of the regular season and the playoffs starting and want to make sure he's back in, in, in top form for the playoffs. Yeah. So that's a good segue. Adam to touch on LeBron. I wanted to revisit his high ankle sprain, which we talked about in detail when it happened. Gee, I what was two months ago, three months ago. And we said, there's no rush. You know, we wouldn't be surprised if he didn't return until the playoffs or right before. And here we are. Um, thank you very much. He came back today. Yeah. Playoffs uh, coming up the end of this week, beginning of next week. And, you know, surprisingly, LeBron James is back playing, um, you know, and, and by no means are we suggesting that he wasn't taking it seriously or that he's weak, that, that that's not the suggestion at all. Um, it's you need to give these time to heal, give them as much time to heal as they can until we go 100 percent. Once the season's at stake, playoffs, even a playoff spot is on the line, you know, at times for the Lakers, he's going to come back and play through the pain as long as it's stable. And so him missing that time at the beginning uh, was certainly good for him. It gave him a chance to heal. He's probably not 100%, but let's be honest, LeBron at 50% is better than almost anybody else in the league right now. And yeah. uh, I think you're seeing that, you know, he had a, a played great today. And uh, I think they'll be careful with him through the playoffs. Um, they'll probably get some breaks here and there, take advantage of his day offs. He doesn't need to practice too much probably. Uh, and any series that looks like they're going to win it pretty handily, I think you'll see him play a little less of a role. But certainly him and Anthony Davis playing well, that's a very tough team to beat. Yeah, and he did try to make a go of it a week or so ago and uh, wasn't quite right. And we're not really surprised by that, right? It's hard to know how that ankle is going to respond until you're actually out there, right? Yeah, it's absolutely right. I mean, I think we saw that earlier this season with Jimmy Garoppolo where he kind of come back a little bit and then not – you know, be quite himself. These take time and you, you can't simulate professional sports until you're playing professional sports. You know, you can do the drills, but when you're playing and there's, you're competing, you're going to the higher level. And uh, he probably has met all of the goals that he needs to meet in the training room. He's probably been able to do almost everything he wants to do on the practice court. But when he gets in the game and he's just trying to step it up and he's trying to compete a little bit more, it just, it just flared up a little bit. And so absolutely right. You know, Test him, series that, give him some breaks. Him playing a week or two ago is 
exactly the right time because if he played great and he felt fine, he's back ready to go. If he's not, he gets another week or two to recover before it matters. And, and now, you know, they're fighting for a spot, a, a planned spot still, but, you know, seating is on the line right now. And uh, he, he's back with a couple games to go just to make sure things are good. I think he'll be back in the playoffs. And I think you're going to see LeBron of old back. Yeah. And I mean, it's not the end of the world to be in the seven seed where they currently are, but the, the, the last game of the season will matter. They have a chance to move up to six if they win and Portland loses to the nuggets tomorrow, the Lakers, a team of that caliber, they really don't want to be in a playing tournament. I mean, LeBron's been pretty vocal about that. And the reason is, is that, you know, anything can happen in a one game series and you know, they're going to match up with the warriors. They're a better team than the warriors, but right now, Curry could oh, yeah. go for 40 or 50 at any point. You're yeah. getting these uh, great performances out of guys like Wiggins and some bench pieces. And uh, the Warriors have beat the Lakers once this season already. And then you roll the dice again in another one game if you end up losing that game. So uh, they'd be much more comfortable if they're in the sixth seed with a guaranteed seven-game series coming up. Uh, you know, again, not that it's the end of the world. If they're the seventh seed, they probably still advance. But a little less stress to go in as the sixth seed. Yeah, I mean, it, it's stressful one-game series. We see it, you know, now in basketball. I've seen it with Major League Baseball in the wild card. Uh, boy, for fans, these one-game series are really exciting. It's like the NCAA tournament all over again. Yep. I, I understand why the players aren't happy about it, but th- this, you know, gets more teams involved, and the first round of playoffs can be a little boring for fans. You know, usually the team that you predict wins, the, the games aren't usually as close as you want them to be. Now you've got some high-stakes games early, it kind of draws some fan interest. I think the play and playing time, I'm sure the players would hate to hear it, but not that they care what I think, but the, the playing time is exciting. These are, these are exciting games. Um, but if you have a bad ankle and you're not sure how well you're going to perform, it'd be nice to have a five or seven game series to feel it out as opposed to one game online. Absolutely. Harold, what's, what's the environment like around the Celtics? What's the mood like in Boston? Well, you know, it's been like an up and down season. And, you know, frankly, I think with the injuries, uh, people don't have a lot of high hopes uh, for the playoffs. You know, so, you know, Boston fans will always stay loyal and cheer their team on. But uh, I just just don't think that there's the expectation that they're going to advance too far in the playoffs. And look, if I'm wrong, you can play the tape. Uh, like a month from now, I'll, I'll get ridiculed, you know, walking down uh, Charles Street in, in Boston. But, uh, yeah, I think just uh, the team is probably not capable with the injuries to, to go too far. Yeah, so stay tuned to part two when we bring Dr. Amr Patel, our hand specialist, on to talk about Jalen Brown. Uh, just a bad injury. Thankfully, it's on his left wrist. Uh, well, fellas, really good to see you. Thanks for staying up late on your Central and East Coast time to – cater to my Pacific coast time zone. We're, we're catering to the fans, Anthony. <laughs> That's right. Always we're, we're, making, we're making sure your parents know everything about the, the current injuries out there. <laughs> All right. Any parting thoughts, fellas? No, it's uh, good to be back. Good to have you back. And uh, yeah, you guys stay well. Looking forward to the next one. All right, guys, check us out on Instagram. We're at sports orthopods, Twitter and Gmail as well. And stay tuned for part two. I'm happy to introduce our special guest today, Dr. Amr Patel, a good friend of mine, actually all the way back from our days at Jefferson Medical College 
in medical school in Philadelphia. It's now known, I think, Amr, as Sidney Kimmel Medical College. Jefferson, by the way, is like one of the oldest and most traditional medical schools in the country, and it's now known as Sidney Kimmel. Amr, how you doing, man? Good to see you. Great, man. Thanks for having me on your show. I've been following it. It's great content. And obviously coming from someone so smart and successful like yourself really makes a difference. And I will say Jefferson is the most oldest and traditional medical school in the nation. But you know what's not traditional is your ball game. You are balling out in med school all the time. Like, where is this kid coming from? And you were just on fire for four years in med school. So I still remember that. <laughs> this is why we had Amr on the show. He's actually not going to add any content uh, <laughs> to say all those things. Uh, so Amr is an orthopedic surgeon like myself, uh, but he is a hand specialist, uh, Miami residency, Indiana hand fellowship, and now in private practice in Orange County, where you're originally from. So how, how's it been going back to the, the homeland in Southern California? Definitely. It's great to be back home, uh, just like yourself from the, you know, California is home for me and it's nice to be back home and taking care of patients in our home area. Uh, but it's also still focusing on the stuff we love, which is orthopedics. So can't beat that. And he also has a lot of experience in doing shows just like this. He, in fact, is one of the fantasy doctors who you've probably seen on YouTube. They have a very cool YouTube channel. Uh, they have a lot of podcasts and you yourself, host your own show for, for the fantasy doctors as being one of them, correct? Yeah, so we kind of started with the NFL, but we branched off the NBA, MLB, NHL. So I kind of helped run the, the NBA portion when the uh, football season's still kind of developing. So it's been good and uh, getting good content out there and you know a lot of learning and it's fun. Always yeah. fun to work. Right, yeah, these, these guys do a great job. Um, they have very extensive and in-depth coverage uh, so definitely check them out if you haven't yet. And the last thing I want to say about Amr is he is like 27 years old. Uh, you know, Doogie Howser was a fictional tale. I think there's a newer show with Freddie Highmore that's kind of like the same thing. Uh, Amr's actually it. He, you know, went to like one year of undergraduate, then immediately to med school. I'm exaggerating, but he is very young. You had an accelerated path to medical school. How did that work? Yeah, so kind of coming from California, I went to this program in Pennsylvania where they give you admission to undergraduate and med school from high school. So, you know, it's kind of this thing that helps you guarantee your admission and not have to stress out about college so much. Um, so, you know, it's a good experience. Definitely, definitely have a lot of friends with the program and look back really fondly upon it. Yeah, we had a, a good contingent of our class at Jefferson was in this program that Amr is speaking of. And they were like kids, but super smart kids and, and just universally good people. And it's great to see all the success you've had, Amr. And um, I'm happy to have you on the show. Thanks. Yeah, ready to talk about some cool uh, sports stuff. And um, thanks for having me on the show. The show has been awesome. And I like the direction you're going with it. Thanks, man. So, yeah, let's start off with Jalen Brown, who unfortunately his season was cut short and really at a time that is kind of disappointing for the Celtics. They haven't had the season they've expected. They've had so many injuries, not only just with Jalen Brown, but Tatum, COVID issues. And unfortunately, Jalen Brown's season is being cut short. So he had a left wrist scapholunate ligament, what we sometimes call scapholunate interosseous ligament tear. It's not clear when it occurred. It may have happened in April. 
against OKC. There's a clip of him going up for a contested layup in traffic. He kind of gets pushed from behind and falls onto that left wrist, and he's clutching it. But he ended up, you know, continuing to play, and the snagging injury eventually turned into something that shelves him. Surgery this past Wednesday, and they're saying expected return in about three months. So I'm um, gonna kind of break that down for us. Like, what is this scaphoelunate ligament? Why is it important? Why does it necessitate surgery when injured? Yeah. So you know, this is kind of one of the worst injuries you can have in your hand. And when we see these injuries as hand surgeons, we really grimace because we also know that even though we can fix it, people don't always do great from it. So if you look at the hand and wrist, I'll try to be quick with this. You have your thumb kind of on the one side of the wrist and your pinky on the other side of the wrist. And smack dab in the middle is this extremely tight ligament called the scaphoelunate ligament. It connects the bone called the scaphoid and the bone called the lunate. So they move in the same direction at all times. So you can imagine when a ligament like that is torn, those bones separate and kind of do their own thing. And that changes how your wrist works and eventually causes pain. And left untreated, it can cause arthritis and kind of a lot of weakness over time. So the issue is that we know he has a tear. A lot of people can play through minor tears, but he must have had a large tear that needed surgery basically as soon as they knew it wasn't going to heal. The surgery is not too hard to do. You basically go in and repair the ligament or suture it back together and either secure it with a variety of different ways with wires or implants that kind of brace the two bones together. But the problem is that this is not a long-term solution that works really well, unfortunately. Yeah. And you know, my hand and wrist knowledge is not what it used to be during my residency days, but from my recollection, this is sort of a question of stability, mm -hmm. right? Like you mentioned, this ligament binds that scaphoid and lunate bone together. If left to their own devices, not bound, they want to move in opposite directions. I think specifically the scaphoid wants to kind of dive down, what we call flex, and the lunate wants to go in the opposite direction. I, th I think that's right, right? Yeah, exactly. So the scaphoid always wants to move in one direction, the lunate in the other. So if the scaphoid flexes, that means the ligaments tear, and then the lunate goes backwards, extends, so you're not really keeping the same relationship. And that's the issue with it. We have this way of that we think we are anatomically recreating the anatomy, but the issue is that whatever we're doing and whatever we've done for the last 20, 30 years hasn't always stood the test of time. There's a 10 to 20% chance, uh, 10 to 20% loss of range of motion and 10 to 20% loss of grip strength, even in the best outcomes. And the risk of recurrence is probably about 10 to 15% of the ligament, 10 to 20% of the ligament splaying apart again. Whether that causes issues immediately is not known, but probably the most famous example of someone who had something similar is actually Isaiah Thomas with the Pistons back in the 80s. The techniques and surgery weren't as good. And he eventually needed a partial wrist fusion that actually ended his career. So it's kind of like an untold story about it that we learned later, but there was a lot going on, even for players back then that just couldn't get the right treatment for it. I guess the good news for Jalen Brown is it is his offhand. He's right-handed. This is his left wrist, but that's pretty concerning what you're, what you're telling me. Yeah. So I think the best news we have, just like you said, is his off wrist. So it doesn't, shouldn't affect his shooting. And I think he's going to be fine for his career. Um, but this can act up later, and there's always a chance if he falls hard that it does happen again, which could be detrimental. We just don't hear about surgery being performed too much on this. Probably the last one I heard about last year was Bajan Bogdanovic with Utah Jazz. 
And he, it was on his, I believe on his shooting hand and his three point percentage was down for the first third of the season. So it kind of lifted back up. Hmm. So it is recoverable, but you know, long-term that's the issue we have here. Interesting. Uh, what do you think about that expected return to, to play about three months? It's a little optimistic. I think probably closer to four to five months is what we do. Heavy laborers get back in four months. So I kind of think about an NBA player as a very high performing uh, uh, role and I think you can go back to shooting and things like that two and a half, three months and playing around four months. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. There's another player uh, who has another left wrist injury who I wanted to compare to Jalen Brown and that's Kelly Oubre Jr. from my Golden State Warriors who have a very important game tomorrow against the uh, Memphis Grizzlies. So Kelly Oubre, if you follow this at all, has been diagnosed with in the media, the reporting says a left wrist avulsion fracture and ligament tear. And this has been an ongoing issue. It was reported to be first injured in April 9th. He missed five games. Then he came back off the bench and first couple of games was really effective. And then the next few games, not so much. Uh, and then he was ultimately shelved on April 27th, uh, almost a month ago. And he was just reevaluated and they said he's itching and dying to play in the playoffs, but he's still having significant pain. So, no surgeries planned for this, but obviously, you know, a debilitating injury. He's missing this last stretch and, and potentially some playoff time, depending on how deep the Warriors go. What, what are you thinking on this one? Yeah, I mean, first off, I feel bad for the guy. I mean, he was acquired from Phoenix and had the meniscus problems and just injuries have piled up a little bit. And we, I think he, he just hasn't had the opportunity to shine as much because we know he's a great player. So just first, I'll just feel bad for him. I think he's going to be a great player down the line. But for my initial impression, they're talking about a small piece of bone that broke off on the wrist with a ligament. And if it's non-operative, my instinct would be that this is called a LT ligament or lunotricletrum ligament avulsion. So if you think about the wrist, the scapolunate was ligament was on the thumb side. There's another ligament just next to it on the small finger side called the lunotricletrum ligament, which connects that lunate bone to a bone called the tricletrum. It works in the same way as the scapolunate ligament about keeping things just steady. So typically we see these injuries where a small piece of bone attached to the ligament breaks off the lunate, and that almost always heals fine without any long-term issues. The concern is that this is still a broken bone and it still hurts. And really, even for my typical patients, it takes six weeks, four to six weeks for the pain to go away, and then a couple more weeks for the motion to come back. So Kelly Oubre is just over a month. So there's an outside chance he can play against Memphis, but I think they're not, they're probably holding out more about hopefully getting him in the playing game schedule. But long term, no issues. I think it's just the timing's not great. Yeah. And unfortunately, Kelly Oubre happens to be left-handed. So yeah. <laughs> shooting, handling the ball, you know, NBA players handle the ball with both hands, but you know, he's going to be left-hand dominant. This is going to be a problem because of the pain. Yeah. And I think the pain's a big thing because this ligament's going to heal, but if you can't perform when you're on the court, um, it's not going to be great. So I think if, when he does play, they'll probably get him back, you know, bench roll and hopefully just relief guy in case they need it. So that way I wouldn't be surprised if he does come back against Memphis just to be there. But in terms of what he's going to do, that's a whole separate conversation. Yeah, and the Warriors rely on him to score. He's a great defender. He's a, a two-way wing. Uh, everybody knows this, but you know, especially with the way the Warriors play, he's going to be called upon, and he has all year to shoot 
from the perimeter. He's a great slasher. That part of his game might be okay if he can handle the pain. But one thing you mentioned is the range of motion. You know, if he's launching threes and he's got limited range of motion and pain, that's going to be a problem. Yeah, and I think that's where it comes down to. So they just have to, it's almost like he just has to be a body to be on the court when they need a relief guy to put up some points. But it's really hard to expect him to get anywhere close to what, like 15 points, six boards he was putting up in a full game and she's just sure. giving more like an extra body to be around yeah uh one more nba notable hand injury and that's zion williamson who has a left ring finger fracture that does not need surgery but his season is over you know it was looking like the pelicans weren't gonna make one of the playing spots uh anyway when this was announced and he actually had a pretty good game it was the second game of a back-to-back against the Warriors, the Warriors have won the first one, and then the Pelicans, uh, which actually turns out to be a pretty important loss for the Warriors, end, end up winning that game, and he he put up pretty good numbers. Um, the story on this was, you know, his coaching staff was like, this is a ma- this is because he's officiated differently and he takes so much abuse. You know, I don't think we necessarily need to weigh in on that, but. Uh, from my understanding, this is going to be fine for him in the end. It's just going to take some time. Is that your assessment? 100%. They said he has some minor fracture that doesn't need surgery, and these typically take several weeks uh, to heal enough to play on. So I don't think it'll be anything worrisome. Um, you know, we can always talk about the comments that the coaching staff made. I mean, you know, <laughs> think about Shaq in the 90s. Yeah, exactly. Guys. But, uh, you know, that's for another conversation. He's a big guy. He gets mauled up and down the rim and he gets called for fouls, maybe not the same rate as some other superstars do. Um, But still, it's part of the game today and you just have to be with it. One thing I will say, it is does come at a great time for my Lakers, however, because we are playing tomorrow and we desperately need wins to stay out of the playout, you know, to stay out of the um, playing bracket. But, um, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah, what's the scenario there? So Lakers are currently sitting at seven and they have an opportunity to move to six, but what needs to happen? Yeah, so basically we are sitting at seven. We're a half game behind uh, Blazers and we were a half game behind the Mavericks to one and we are, we're ahead of the Warriors. So we're that we're in the playoff hunt. The question is if we get in or out. Our schedule right now, I believe we have two games coming up, um, one against the Pelicans, and then I believe the second one we're playing Indies. Yes, yeah, Pacers today. Um, LeBron is supposedly coming back. Yeah, they're playing right now. Actually, we're up in the first quarter. Oh, okay. Uh, LeBron. I am ashamed. I'm taking you away from this game. Okay, we're going to wrap this up quickly so you can get That's back to that cool. game. Oh uh, yeah, but <laughs> we need to win both to really keep it because the and Portland's playing the Nuggets on on Monday, I believe. So. I don't know. We see what happens. There's a good chance that the Nuggets may rest up in order to get Portland out or, or to keep the Lakers out. So we'll see what happens, though. It's going to be kind of interesting to see what the, what the team decided to do coming into that game because it has a lot of implications. Yeah, I'll tell you from the Warriors standpoint, uh, or as a Warriors fan, and my guess from the Warriors standpoint, they would love for the Lakers not to be that number seven team because yeah. I think in a uh, – that first round of the play and they'd much rather play assuming the Warriors capture the eighth spot because who knows they might end up as nine but if they mm-hmm. end up with eight and play number seven on the road for that first game they'd much rather play the Blazers than the Lakers <laughs> yeah and you know the Blazers are always this like dark horse team coming in bottom seating in the west but they always make some noise but at the same time you know if you're the Warriors the Grizzlies you want you don't want to see the Lakers in a playing game 
Absolutely. And, and the Warriors just have a track record, especially Draymond Green. He just has owned Portland and Steph Curry too, but Draymond in particular, you know, last time the Warriors were making the title run, they saw Portland in the West Conference Finals and they swept him basically on the back of Draymond Green. I, I remember that series, every game, the Warriors were down like double digits in the first half and then Draymond would just will them to, to a win. And, uh, you know, there's some sort of like psychological edge, I think that Draymond has with Portland. That said, Dame Lillard, much respect, Oakland guy, I love him. Um, you, you just never know what's gonna happen with Dame, especially in crunch time. And having said that, I don't think the Lakers want to play Steph in the Warriors. In the yeah. I mean, that you, Steph's just been on a tear, and if when and when he gets hot, and Lakers have this tendency to give up, and we when we were down by a lot, we give up. We don't have a good role player system the way we had last year or two. So I just I don't I'm not comfortable with with us playing the Warriors that early, and where we can knock down in one game, you know. Yeah, I think that's probably the general consensus because right now Steph can go for 40 at any time. My worry for the Warriors is if they do advance beyond the play-in tournament, they got to beat a team four times. And right now they're getting incredible performances from a lot of bench players like Jordan Poole and the newly signed to a long-term deal, Juan Toscano-Anderson, another Oakland native, which is a great story. Um, you just wonder if that's going to hold up. You know, Steph's going to be there, Draymond's going to be there, uh, but will Andrew Wiggins continue his hot shooting? We'll, we'll see. You know, I'm hopeful, but but we'll see. Um, anyway, let's let's do one more, uh, another Oakland uh, athlete, but from the MLB, and then we'll let you go, Amr. That's Jesus Lazardo, who, uh, if anybody follows the Oakland A's, which is not very many people besides me, uh, who, by the way, have played great since I badmouthed them on this podcast. Uh, he he is, you know, projected to be the next Johan Santana. He's a left-handed stud. His numbers haven't really played out that way thus far, but he's very young. And so he actually has sustained an esports injury, not as injury related to baseball. And that is a left small finger hairline, which we assume to be, you know, non-displaced. Kind of the pieces of the puzzle are, are in place, but there's a crack in the foundation. Uh, fracture from striking his hand on a desk while playing video games. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think about this one? <laughs> you know, dumb mistakes happen. <laughs> Lazardo said it was the dumb mistake, and you know, at least it won't be anything detrimental long term. But uh, you're, you always kind of laugh when you see these like off field incidents, whether they're major or minor. But all things considered, I think you'll be fine. Basically, what happens when you have a hard strike to a desk like that? you can have a hairline fracture, one of the bones on that small finger side of the hand where you're striking. So these typically typically still take that four to six week time to heal, but in terms of getting him back, it can be a lot sooner. Um, but the question always is that he's lefty, right? So yeah. Yeah. what do you do about that? There's a lot of risk in terms of a fly ball goes onto his hand or, you know, there's, there's just a lot of risk there. So I still think he'll be out at least for a few weeks to let it heal up until they get him back slowly, usually with a bumper guard or something protective on the hand um, when he's not throwing at least though. Yeah, this story reminded me of the end of Bull Durham when um, Kevin Costner gets drunk and I think he's salty because Tim Robbins has just been called up to the show and he sort of goes Tim Robbins into fighting him and Tim Robbins ends up punching him in the face and first thing Kevin Costner says is, which hand did you punch me with? And the lesson there was you never strike anything with your throwing hand. Never, <laughs> ever, ever. And Jesus Lazardo, you need to watch that movie not only because it's classic, but because that is a lesson to be learned 
for the rest of your life. <laughs> I guarantee you Jesus will never make the mistake again. Whether he's playing video games or whatever, it doesn't make a difference. <laughs> I think part of the reporting should mandate that they have to find out what video game you were playing. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the situation? <laughs> was yeah. like Madden and you know some crazy turnover happened that cost you the game or uh, <laughs> like like what, what what was the scenario? <laughs> it's like Minecraft or a ball. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You're like, what? <laughs> All right, Amr. Well, um, it was great to see you, great to catch up. I, I would love to have you back on because uh, as the audience can probably tell, my hand wrist knowledge is just so-so, and you are the expert and very well-spoken. Uh, re really appreciate the analysis. Um, so, so please come back next time I'll call you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Anthony. And for everyone out there, I'm just, uh, Anthony's done such a great job with this podcast and has really grown to something really cool. So congrats to you and looking forward to hearing some more great uh, podcasts from your group. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again, man. Check out the Fantasy Doctors. I'm going to see you next time. Mom and Dad, have a good night. Bye-bye.